Hey, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'm Ben Clark. I'm the director of youth and operations here, and it's a joy for me to be here and get to preach this morning. Um, so open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. By way of introduction, I am going through one of the longest running series um, because I only preach a couple times per year, and it's through the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, I just want to catch you up really quick on where we've been and where we're going. Um, 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter. It's written to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul helped to start and that is dear to Paul's heart. And um, so Paul writes this from prison in Rome, and he writes to Timothy to contend well for the gospel. He encourages him. He gives him motivation. He says in 1 Timothy, there's numerous um, times where Paul points out and says, Timothy, there's days coming when false teachers are going to come in. And so I get the glorious task this morning of approaching false teachers. Um, so that's enjoyable and th that's uh, exciting where Timothy is exhorted by Paul and Paul says, Timothy, hold fast, hold the line, don't waver on the gospel, and it's important. The ministry that you're doing is important, so stay strong. So let's read together all of chapter three. Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lover of pleasure, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men. It's a great start, right? Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. As I read this passage, um, I saw two things. 
And as I saw those two things, it reminded me of one of my favorite heroes from, from the silver screen, and that's Barney Fife. And Barney Fife, in one of the episodes where they lock somebody up in the prison in Mayberry, he says, here at the rock, there's two basic rules. And he says, rule number one, obey all rules. Rule number two, don't write on the walls with pencil, as it's really hard to get off. And the tough guy facade vanishes, and it's Barney Fife. But I hear Paul saying to Timothy, not in humor and not in sarcasm or jest, but true imperatives. One, how do we deal with false teachers? And two, what do you hold on to? People always ask the question, well, do you want the bad news first or do you want the good news? Scripture doesn't usually ask us that question because it gives us bad news first, right? Bad news like the fall. Bad news like sin. Bad news like you are unable to save yourself. Bad news like you have fallen short of God's glory. But Scripture does give us good news. And this passage is no different. It gives us the bad news first. And it gives us the this news that we live in a time of godlessness in the last days. If you're following along in your notes, that's your first point, godlessness. The section heading tells us well where we're going. Paul just finished chapter 2 where he says to Timothy, hey, continue faithfully as a good soldier, as a good farmer, as a good athlete. Um, Continue faithfully, steadfastly in going after truth because in the proclamation of truth, God grants grace to save people. So continue faithfully in gospel ministry, right? Um, He says that God might have mercy on some. So right now, he says, but in these last days, there will be times of difficulty. And this is not like hand-wringing, we don't know what to do with it. This is not chicken little, the sky is falling. But this is a more deeply rooted. Sin is prevalent and rampant in the heart of man. And that's what we see in the text. Because the text gives us an unnatural switch. A switch from proper love to a distorted kind of love, where we see what happens in this text is it says, for people will be lovers of self. That's the crux of this difficulty, where self-love reigns is where sin finds the deepest in its most fertile soil. Where self-love becomes the highest important thing, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, what is the serpent's lie to Eve? She says to Eve, hey, doesn't this tree look good? Did God really say it's that you can't even look at it? Does it look good? Don't you want it to be made wise? And it says that Eve saw that it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirous to make one wise. And so she took it and she ate it, right? She says, I have a desire, and that desire trumps God's plan, which was avoid this tree, because in avoiding that, there's life. And Eve chose and said to sin against God, where she says, I am the one that's the most important in this story. Eve says, is God holding back on me? And so she ate it. People will be lovers of self. In the last days, that's what Paul says is going to happen Whenever in scripture we see this term last days, 
almost always, it's referring to the time that began when Christ ascended into heaven, where as king, he came to call for himself a people to redeem them, and then he ascended to heaven and inaugurated his kingdom. But then the last days will continue through the times we are living in now, and will continue until Christ returns to call us home, to call his people home. So we live now in this time of last days. And Paul writes also to Timothy in AD 65 in this time of last days. And he tells Timothy, here's what's going to happen. People will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. They'll say, in my love of self, I'm also going to desire money because what money does for me is it makes myself, it makes me the most comfortable. It gives me security. It gives me a, gives me a sense of safety. In some senses, it's easy to look to money to something to be, that we save ourselves through. These are some of the defining traits he continues on in this list, right? They're proud, they're arrogant, ab- abusive, dishonest to parents. These are things that are a little bit more under the, or a little bit more visible than a love of self, a little bit more visible than a love of money. Some external traits um, of what happens in the last days Let's continue. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He continues with the good characteristics that these people are devoid of, right? He says they are without gratefulness, ungrateful. They're without holiness. They're unholy. They're without love. ESV says heartless. They're unappeasable. It means without self-control. The fruits of God's spirit, Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things are the kinds of traits that people in the last days naturally are devoid of. The list keeps going on. Brutal, not loving good. Doesn't mean necessarily that they love what is most evil and what is most abhorrent, but that they don't ultimately love what is good. D.A. Carson defines this trait as those people who in all areas of their life tend to push the envelope of what is acceptable and moral and considered good. Not necessarily that they're evil, or as we would define evilness, um, at the very core, but that they are devoid of the good traits and the holy things that God desires. And finally, the gloves come off for Paul, and he lands a few deep blows, right? He said they'll be lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And here's where the perversion of love lies, right? God is not the ultimate object of love. The one who created them, the one who made them, who knit them in their mother's womb, the one who desires relationship with them is not the object of love, but what instead is pleasure. And that goes against the heart of what it means to be called after following Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ never said that following after him was an easy task. It's going to be a difficult thing to follow Christ Jesus. But yet, the love of pleasure is a whole lot easier. Let me follow what makes me happy. Let me follow what I desire most. God is not the object of love. There's still love there, but it's lavished. It's spent in the wrong places. This love for God is disastrously replaced with a love for self, with a love for pleasure, and that's idolatry. And then he says this, they have a form of godliness, but without power. They have a form of godliness. That means it looks the part. 
In Romans 1.17, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power that is lacking in their form of godliness is the gospel. There's morality, potentially. There's love of self. He said, my desire is for me to be healthy and for me to be happy. And those things are okay. They're not inherently evil. But when there is no form of godliness that includes the gospel, then it's a perversion of what God has of what God has called. The power of God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it has a purpose. That purpose is to call people from death to life, from love of self to love of God, from love of money to love of God and love what pleases him. It's to proclaim freedom for captives. It's to proclaim liberty for those that are oppressed by sin. That's what the gospel does. That is what godliness with power looks like. It looks like calling sinners to life, sinners to repentance. You're probably sitting along with me thinking, that sounds awful lot like the traits of today, and that's very, very true. You said, but Ben, you also talked about false teachers, and you're going to talk about those, and that's true. Because what Paul says is, here's what people look like. Among the, avoid those, he says, who like look this way. Um, it's the description of a non-believer. And Paul says in the end of chapter 2, um, patiently endure them with the hope that God might lead to salvation. But Paul also gives now a description of dangerous people. Okay? He says, avoid such people for among them are those who would creep into houses, Right? Bear with them in gentleness if they're just a non-believer. But in the case of a false teacher, Paul's going to say, avoid them. The wolf in sheep's clothing that he warned the Ephesian church of in um, Acts chapter 20. Because they lead away the young and the immature. They oppose the truth of God. They're corrupt in mind. And they're disqualified regarding matters of faith. Those, these are the kind of people who would peddle last day's lies. And you've heard this, right? If you've, turned on, uh, if you've turned on the TV and watched TV preachers, you've heard last day's preaching. If you've walked past the self-help aisle in any bookstore, you've seen last day's teaching. You've heard it and you've seen it all over the place. Anytime that you present information, for those of you that are teachers, for those of you that are public speakers, for those of you that get up and present any kind of information, that one of the first rules that you learn is to know your audience, right? Know who they are. Know where they're coming from. The false teachers of Paul's day that he is talking about are ones who knew their audience, okay? And it says this in Scripture. They lead away silly and weak women, burdened with sin, led astray with passions, who are always learning but never understanding the truth. So I listened to some sermons because I didn't want to be the young guy who says, okay, women, don't be silly, don't be weak, and led astray by various people, because that would be unwise on my part. Um, So stay with me here. It appears from the consensus 
of, uh, of commentators that what's going on here is that when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church that there could be one of two explanations for this. One is that it could be in reference to the women that are talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Women who, are, who have time on their hands, who Paul says instruct them that what they should pursue is godliness. Or, on the other hand, it could align with, expre- with just the cultural normals of the day where well-to-do women oftentimes would hire into their homes a spiritual tutor of sorts who would come in and who would instruct them in matters of spirituality. Um, regardless of what the absolute certain answer is, which I'm not going to stand up here and make one, one state, uh, statement there, There's some other traits here than weak and silly women that I think hold more importance for us this morning. One of them, the expression burdened with sins. Because let me tell you this, women are not the only ones who are burdened with sins. Burdened with sins. Perhaps Paul is writing to those who felt like the psalmist in Psalm 38. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. And for someone like that, for a smooth-talking snake oil salesman preacher to come in and say, hey, what you need is just a spoonful of antinomianism. That is, that what you do and the sin that you commit doesn't really matter because God doesn't really care about that sin, and there's grace to cover that. A spoonful of antinomianism might go down really smoothly to the one burdened with sin. Or perhaps the teacher who would come in and prescribe what you need is asceticism in your life. Abstain from all kinds of pleasure. Do away with anything that seems like comfort. And perhaps while you're at it, just hand over your checkbook to us for God's work. For believers living in the last days, here's what is imperative to us. John Piper talks about, as a young man, he spent a tremendous amount of time in God's word because he came down with mono. And so he said, for months he was laid up in bed and he just devoured God's word. And God awakened within his heart this love for God's word. And what he said is he said, over those months that I was laid up, he said, I may not have gotten... Um, He said, I wasn't sitting through classes and I wasn't necessarily learning. He said, but what I did learn from the pages of Scripture was to have a sound theological nose. That's what he calls it. He said, I may not have been able to always put my finger on the absolute theological truth that is wrong. He said, but what I did know was that from the pages of Scripture, he said, I could discern truth from error. What I could do was discern truth from error. And what he attributed that to was to spending time in God's word so that when the lies of the world, when the lies of false teachers, when the lies of even potentially within his own heart would come up, he would be able to say, here is truth against that. The imperative command from Scripture for the Christian leader, Timothy, living in the last days, is to avoid the false teacher. Avoid the false teacher. That's difficult for us. 
Because here's my tendency. I can at times be a little bit argumentative and potentially think, hey, perhaps I can convince them of the error of their ways. But guess what Paul says? Maybe this holds more truth for me than for some others of you. Avoid the false teacher. Yes, you were to bear with the lost in hopes that God would save them. But find the difference. The one who's peddling lies versus the one who just believes the lies. Avoid the Joel Osteens. Avoid the Creflo dollars who use their words to pad their own pockets with a prosperity theology. Here's what Albert Moeller says about it. He says, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Its message is unbiblical and its promises fail. God never assures his people of material abundance or physical health. Instead, Christians are promised the riches of Christ, the gift of eternal life, and the assurance of glory and the eternal presence of the living God. Avoid the Brian McLarens of the world who defy the inerrancy of Scripture and the absoluteness of its truth claims and instead say that God's word is a continually evolving human understanding of God and of truth. Whereas the Bible itself, and even in this passage, clearly states that it is breathed by God. One day, false teachers will be exposed. They'll be exposed to wear the emperor's clothing of their own righteousness, their own handcrafted righteousness, their love of self. We are living now in times where error seems to be exalted as the truth. We're living now where lies sometimes seem to win. But take heart, Christians. Walk in obedience to Scripture. Avoid false teachers because they are the ones who peddle godlessness in these last days. However, Paul does provide good news for Timothy, and that is that Scripture, this letter of Paul that we read today in 2017, in the last days, is God's Word, and it's breathed by Him. And what it does is it leads not to godlessness, but it leads us to godliness. So godliness in these last days. Paul says to Timothy, you, however, in stark opposition to the false teachers, you, however, have followed my teaching and my way of life. Timothy holds a different rank and a title. He's not a false teacher. Instead, he's followed after Paul's example of faith. He's under great mentorship. And, so many, and then Paul goes on to show in so many directly corresponding ways that Paul's life lines up differently. It's not characterized by self-love, but by devotion to Christ. There's a different aim. There's a different result. There's drastically different loves. There's a whole list in Philippians 3 where Paul talks about the external indicators of holiness that he has. And then there's the work of God that he talks about that lets him count those things as lost compared to knowing Christ and following after him and boasting in Christ. That's Paul, and that's his life. And he says to Timothy, you have followed after my life. Footsteps of faith that lead through persecution, lead through trials to Jesus Christ, the one who rescues. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to follow after. Thea Carson made this quote. He said, in a decaying world, watch who your heroes are. Are your heroes the ones who are always teaching you 
but you're never able to arrive at an understanding of the truth or your spiritual heroes revealing God's truth to you. D.A. Carson went on to share a story from his college days about how as a young believer, he started a Bible study with a few young men. And he said that in those days, he was foolish enough to think he was equipped to lead this Bible study. He said, but one thing he had going for him, there was a graduate student that lived on his hall. um, And this graduate student said, hey, while I can't be at your Bible study all the time, if there's questions that come up that you or the folks in your Bible study need answers, come to me and I'll try to help you learn together. I'll try to help point you toward truth. And so as the story goes on, one day D.A. Carson brings to his room two of the guys that were in his Bible study, and they both had questions to ask this older believer. And the first one starts out, he says, I've heard a lot about a lot of different, you know, a lot of different um, forms of godliness, and he said, it seems to me like all of them pretty much are the same thing. And he said, so I don't really see what's so unique about Christianity, and what instead I think you should do is try to convince me. The graduate student looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I don't have any time for that. D.A. Carson's like, "Uh uh-oh. So, like, this guy who's supposed to be helping me out just didn't help me out at all. And the second student then introduces himself and says what he was there for. He said, I grew up in a liberal background. He said, but I've been in this Bible study And I've seen that there's something different about the claims of Christianity. And I just want to know, what is it that's different? And the same graduate student who had just said minutes ago to this other guy, hey, I don't have time for you, said to him, why don't you move in with me and watch my life? He said, move in with me, observe how I live my life, and I want you to observe how it's differently. And he said, you can observe how I spend time with the Lord You can observe how I spend my time off. He says, you can observe everything about me if you just move into my rooms, and perhaps that will show you what is different about following after Jesus Christ. Well, the student didn't actually take him up on the offer to move in, but what he did is he started spending a tremendous amount of time with that graduate student. He would spend his free time, he would spend uh, his weekends investing in a relationship with this older student. And what that older student did was lived out in front of him true godliness. And he lived his life transparently and open before him. And by the end of that semester, that student had come to know Christ because he observed the life of someone who was truly following after Jesus Christ. Theology and an understanding of Scripture sometimes is caught as well as taught from observing the life of those who have lived it well. Your heroes will point you, they will lead you to Jesus Christ consistently and the way in which they live their lives and the words in which they say. Those words in their life will tell a story that's about one Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who came to offer sinners life through his death. They're not going to send you on continual quests for truth that never lead to understanding. Paul talks also about living examples of godliness, about a godly legacy. Paul had lived out before Timothy a godly life, but he also had lived, he also points to Timothy's upbringing. Um, 
where he said, where in 1 Timothy it tells us, sorry, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 it tells us um, about how he looks at his grandmother and his mother who had passed along faith to Timothy. And he says, continue to follow after those people who point you to Jesus. This is the story of discipleship, right? Paul recalls, who are the people who have deeply invested spiritually in your life? What's beautiful in this passage is that we see in this passage the antidote or the antivenom that's given for the poisonous teaching of a false gospel. It's found in obedience to this imperative. Continue in what you have seen. Continue in what you have learned and believed knowing from whom you learned it, because we've passed on the word of God. We're blessed to be in a church that boldly and consistently and faithfully proclaims the word of God. Where we don't teach, we don't preach, we don't inform from our own decisions and our own understanding, but we let the word of God reign preeminent here. And where scripture calls out sin, We call out sin, and where Scripture calls to holiness, that's what we seek to do as well. We stand, in a sense, on the shoulders of theological and of wise giants who have pointed us to faith in Jesus Christ. As I look back on my own life, this is my testimony as well, that I get to stand on the shoulders of people who have pointed me to Jesus so much. I grew up in a family where, like Timothy, I can say, people could say of me, you observed it at home. You observed living godliness at home from your mom and dad. Mom and dad didn't have that. They didn't grow up in godly homes. And so mom and dad were first-generation believers. They didn't know what discipleship looked like. But what they did is they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to learn from the best people that we can try to, and then we're going to point our kids to scripture all the time. And so scripture was so important in our home because that's what leads to godliness. And so as I continued on, mom and dad made sure that we were a family that continually was at a church that proclaimed the gospel, that didn't proclaim their own understanding or man's wisdom, but proclaimed the gospel. And then they were careful to encourage me, even as as a young and insecure teenager, to say, hey, that big, scary youth pastor, go talk to him and get discipleship from him. And so for years, I sat under great discipleship, and Larry Team took me under his wing and said, here's a young and stupid kid, but I'm going to invest my life in him because God's doing something in his life. And there's been so many people along the course of my life who have poured into me and that have not said, here's our wisdom and here's what we desire to show you, but here's God's wisdom and here's the word of Scripture. Um, And what they showed to me was that their lives and their testimony and their words pointed me back to Scripture as the way in which I live my life. We find in Scripture that what we cling to, verse 14 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is Scripture, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to defend the inerrancy of Scripture and say to Timothy, in the face of any lies he had ever heard, all Scripture is breathed out by God. 
and it's profitable for everything that you need. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. In every way, he shows that Scripture itself is able to make you wise for salvation and inform the way that you live. Equips you to live a gospel-centered life. So dads, what this means for you is that Scripture informs your time off and how you live in relationship to your children. It means that you don't have a license to pawn off their spiritual upbringing on your wife who's probably more prone to take hold of that responsibility. It means that Scripture informs how you discipline your children with patience. It says that fathers don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the fear of the Lord. Scripture informs how you raise your children. Church doesn't necessarily just inform that. Parenting books don't inform that. Scripture informs how you live your life as a dad. For husbands, Scripture's full of wisdom for you, and it's difficult wisdom for you to hear because it tells you to lay down your life for your wife. Because the way that you live in relationship to your wife should ultimately reflect Christ's love for you. And that to the greatest extent of love possible, he laid down his life for his bride, which is the church. And so the degree to which you understand that is the same degree to which you're going to love your wife well. It doesn't give you a license to be lazy or to hold on to a list of wrongs, but commands you to live with your wife in gentleness. That's what scripture does for dads and husbands, for wives. Scripture informs the way that you live. You might have a cruddy husband. Chances are you do because we're sinners. Sometimes we don't love you really well. But scripture informs how you live in submission to your wife, to submission to your husband in the same way that you submit to Christ. You're to live in, an in, in submission to an imperfect husband like you do to Christ. It's a really hard teaching, but that's what Scripture calls you to do. In fact, God even goes so far to say that God can use redemptive work in your life that an unbelieving husband could be won over by the way that you live in godly submission to them and leading your family. It's unbelievable gospel power for wives. For moms, Scripture informs how you live in, in front of your children you're to train up your children in the way that they should go, that when they're old, they're not depart from the wisdom that you proclaim to them from God's word. Also, you're to honor your husband before them because your life in that way shows them how they're to submit to Jesus Christ. It's an incredibly difficult calling that you have. But yet scripture gives you not only the imperatives, but it also gives you the hope. Because scripture teaches that where you feel like you're in over your head and where iniquity seems to abound, that God's grace covers those. And sometimes you need that. Hey, singles, you aren't exempt from this either. Scripture says to you that your time of singleness is a gift from God. Scripture informs how you live singly? Yeah. Because you're able, it says, to use this time when you're undistracted from the cares of this life. That's what Scripture says. The cares of the world and you're focused on how you can serve Christ. 
If you don't re- believe that, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for a while. I have an aunt who didn't marry into her 40s, and singleness was not easy for her. But more than anybody I might have seen, because I saw her a little bit more closely being related to her and all that, my aunt lived singleness really well in which she followed hard after Jesus Christ and invested her life so hard in ministry. And that, you know, 15 years later, when she's moved away, she lives in Noonan now, from all her people in Washington, D.C., she still gets together with them once a year, and she's investing in these lives of these people that she said, I use the years of my singleness to know God and to proclaim what he is doing to this other group of singles that I lived with. That's incredible gospel power. Children, youth, Scripture informs how you live. Scripture, God's word, it isn't just for your parents. It's not just for grown-ups, but it's for you too. Okay, and this is what Scripture says to you, informing you how to live. It teaches you that one of the means for God's blessing in your life is for you to honor and obey your parents. You get that? I'm not just saying that because I'm the youth pastor and your parents want me to say that. I'm saying that because scripture says, honor your parents, obey them, live in submission to them because in doing so, there's great reward. Paul even goes on to tell Timothy or to tell Titus in the next book, if you were to just turn two pages to the right or something like that, he says, let your conduct be such a testimony of maturity Like that these old folks who just want to say, kids these days, they got nothing good going for them. Live your life in such a way that it shuts them up. Set them an example in the way that you live your life. That's hard. Scripture calls you to it, right? And Scripture teaches you how to have the power to do that. Older men and women in this church, we desperately need you. Scripture particularly addresses older women a couple times, and it charges them to teach younger women. But guess what? That's not just for women. It's for guys as well. Older men and women, the church desperately needs your wisdom from walking with the Lord for a long time. It needs you to be the shoulders of giants that sometimes we stand on. And for young men, for us to call you and say, what does it look like to stay faithfully married for 45 years? What does it look like to raise kids who eventually grow up to be successful? Because right now it just looks like we're raising kids who color cool pictures. I don't know, but we desperately need you. We desperately need your wisdom. Use the later years of your life as a gift from God. In a sense, a second season of life that's undistracted from the cares of this world so that you can invest like Paul invested in Timothy. So in closing, here's what scripture says. We live in dark times, right? Is that anything new? Is it informing us of something we don't know? No. We live in dark times as we wait for Christ to return, but we don't live in dark times as victims of them. We live in them with full confidence that God is at work, that he is building his church. And scripture tells us that the gates of hell, that also means that the mouths of Creflo Dollars and Brian McLarens and Joel Osteens are not prevailing against the church that Christ is building. And here's what remains for God's people to do. Here's what we do as we live in the last times. 
First of all, we live lives that other people might look to and say their life is different because they follow after Jesus. And the way in which we do that is we live lives that are founded on the foundation of Scripture because Scripture informs how we live life in difficult times. We continue to share the gospel. Yes, we proclaim Christ with boldness, and we pray that God would save those that are lost. God's word stands as an anchor, as a rock, as a firm foundation upon which we build. So what what do we do? We continue steadfastly in what we have learned and what we have heard from the pages of Scripture because we know that this is able to make us wise for salvation. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, word that is full of life, that is full of authority and power. God, I pray that these men and women, these students and these children that are under the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray that they would be wise to listen to it. God, we pray that you would have mercy on those who have believed a lie, who have believed an anti-gospel that have distorted a love for God and turned it into a love for self. For our generations, Lord, I pray that we would be a people and a generation of men and women who follow firmly and steadfastly after Jesus Christ. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that we would take those under our wing who come behind us, Lord, and that we would teach them diligently in the way in which they should walk, that we would open to them Scripture on a continual basis and that it would make them wise for salvation. Lord, I pray that our church would be known as a church that makes disciples who know Jesus Christ and who grow together and who grow in an understanding of the word of God so that they might then reach our world. Lord, we pray this for your glory and that your name would be known. Pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.